famously, I was um, I was looking at restaurants and I came across Japanese conveyor belt sushi, and that's you know at that moment I'd never heard of it before. None of us had, and it was quite big in Japan. And at that moment, it was like just those three words, conveyor belt sushi. I thought, whoa, that's got show business in it. I've done the research. I've put the thing in, and um, I want to see it happen. And then you are willing to put your, you, I was willing to risk everything really. I've thrown away the marketing budget. I have no marketing budget at all. I spent all the money on doing something really interesting. I was in Soho, I had a big, big shop window. I covered it all in a printed um, orange paper so that nobody could see in it. And on it, it had words like sushi, conveyor, robot, Sapporo, and people were walking past in Soho and they must have been talking about it because it was a big window. What is going on in that place? Our eating habits are changing. We're demanding better dining experiences and the food market has never been so competitive. Starting and succeeding with a food business is challenging, but some determined and passionate entrepreneurs are flourishing. These people have big dreams, big passion, and big drive. They are disruptors, change makers, and innovators. They see a positive future. Many say that food business is too risky. Some say that it has huge rewards. Are you up for the challenge? Today I had the pleasure of interviewing Simon Woodruff, he's the founder of Yo Sushi. He came up with the idea at the age of 40 after a successful career in stage and set design and management and really risked his whole life savings in pursuit of this new concept. Yo Sushi, when it arrived in London, was super innovative, super unique. There was nothing like it in London at all at the time. And obviously it was conveyor belts, robots, it was uh, call buttons for the waiting staff. And really he made waves in the London restaurant scene. People rushed to experience it and it enjoyed really very early success. Um, Simon, I think one of his greatest successes um, was his realization that he Best, I guess he wasn't best suited to scale up and roll out himself. So he realized quite early on to get an experienced um, business person, restaurateur on board. And that was in the form of Robin Roland. Robin successfully rolled out the concept and Simon really transitioned into more of a creative role. He subsequently went on to launch Yotel and uh, Yo Home. Uh, both of which have been very successful and it was super insightful conversation I had with him. His vast experiences, um, he's, he's gone through failures and successes and just a really nice guy to speak to as well. So I really enjoyed speaking to Simon. Hope you enjoy it. So Simon, I first came across you at the business show in Excel about 18 months ago. I was super inspired. It was a great talk you, you gave. I know you do a lot of talks. You're in that kind of circuit. Like what attracts you to doing them in the first place? Speaking, television, all that. I mean, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? I mean, that's why Elton John wrote 
I'm still standing after all these years. That's why the great artists and actors carry on acting into their 80s. Um, what If you can stand on a stage and command an audience and you've got something to say and you inspire somebody and you get applause, why wouldn't you do that? Sure. Fantastic. Okay. So you're getting fulfillment from seeing people inspired by the stories? Yeah. To be, and... and to do, be able to do something difficult like that and do it well, how satisfying. Sure, very good. And then they clap. <laughs> very good. So I'd love to start really in your earlier years um, and just find out, like, were you always entrepreneurial? And what was your earliest entrepreneurial moment that you can remember? Um, yeah, no, I, I think I was a, a free thinker from quite a young age. Um, when I left school, at 16, when I left Marlborough, it was just after Sergeant Peppers had come out and the Doors album had come out and we were doing some peace signs, you know, had long hair and we really meant them. And I bought a sewing machine, a Singer sewing machine, and I found a wholesaler that made, got, sold leather and snakeskin in London and had a few bob and started wearing, making hippie snakeskin belts, or it wasn't a very successful business. But it was entrepreneurial because I needed to make some money and I thought I could make more money doing that than going and getting a job, which I wasn't qualified to do anyway. So I think I was always entrepreneurial. And the thing is, if you leave school without qualifications, you, you automatically become entrepreneurial almost because you have to do something. Okay. And what do you think fueled that entrepreneurial mindset in you? Like well, what, what was the spark that kind of got you going? Funnily enough, my brother, who's also an entrepreneur really, he runs a big lighting um, thing and uh, we have often thought you know my mother was a very conventional English lady and my father was a very um, risk-averse army officer so where the hell did that come from Ooh. but I think we do the opposite of our parents don't we you know I think we sort of think well actually you rebel against you them, rebel against you? it you know you know yeah, I think that's what happened, probably. But I've never been able to work that one out. Okay, okay. So I know you worked in stage and design management, yes, uh, stage and set design management for many years. What do you think you learned from that and what skills did you develop that helped you then in your future entrepreneurial career and success? Well, I, I, when I left school, um, somebody said, um, you know, you want to do something that you enjoy. And I really couldn't think of anything to do with work that I enjoyed, but I like rock and roll music. And I went on the road really as a roadie. And I'd worked in the theatre a bit, so I knew a little bit about staging things. And I used to tell the bands that they ought to have these big sort of rock shows, you know, like Busby Berkey did for the movies in the 1920s. And they'd go, no, 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 man, because that was what it was like in those days. And eventually, of course, they did. And I got a big break um, on a Rod Stewart tour he wanted a big stage set nobody knew where to get these things made in the rock and roll business but because I'd driven the Richmond theatre van I knew who made the rostrums and the curtains and this that and the other and I became a stage designer and that's that's actually what happened but um, I think that I'd left school with um, not a great deal of education so I've never had the imagination educated out of me so mm. I'd always be able to see things and have ideas and I would uh, get them together, go and present them to the groups. And so I was an ideas person. You know, ideas are only a very small part of being an entrepreneur, but you've got to have that. You've got to have the imagination to be able to see what things are. And over 
15, 20 years, I practiced coming up with ideas mm. and executing them mm. and making them happen and making them tour all over the world. Mm. You know, a very difficult thing to do actually in those days, especially because we didn't have the sort of infrastructure to do it in those days. Mm. So, and then I was in the television business for a while and I learned how to make deals. Um, so, you know, if you marry those three together, it's creativity, execution, building things, and um, making deals, you've got the basis to do what I later did. Sure. I guess it's a very cool sector you're in as well. So you're, you're learning to develop things that will sell to mass markets it as well? It was show business. Yeah. And actually restaurants, which is where I later went, and hotels and all sorts, that's show business as well. I always say, they used to, when I was in the theater, they used to have this very annoying thing. They used to say, there's a biz, there's a ziz in showbiz. And I always say there's got to be a ziz in any business. Okay, very good. So at 40 years old, you decided to launch Yo Sushi to go out on your own. Mm -hmm. What inspired you to uh, quit your career in set design and to go out on your own? Well, I'd be in set design and then I was in the television business. I'd, honestly, when I look back, I'd burnt a few bridges along the way. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd sort of messed a few things up. So. Um, the simple answer is it was sheer desperation. You know, I, I didn't feel that I was employable. I was running out of money. Um, I had a flat um, and I thought I have to do something. And I went out looking for things to do. And I really could have done anything. I was a, I've always climbed. I've been a mountaineer all my life, a sailor and a mountaineer. So I was going to do early rock climbing walls, indoor rock climbing walls. And then I didn't get along with the guy I was going to do it with. And I didn't do that, luckily, very luckily. And um, you know, famously, I was, um, I was looking at restaurants and, you know, everybody said, oh, very, very high risk. And I came across Japanese conveyor belt sushi. And that's, you know, at that moment, I'd never heard of it before. None of us had. And it was quite big in Japan. And at that moment, it was like just those three words, conveyor belt sushi. I thought, whoa, that's got show business in it and it's doable. And that's where it started. That's where okay. the seed got sown. Okay. And where did you get that idea from? Well, I, I'd, I'd, uh, I'd done something that was interesting. I was really stuck and I'd been stuck a few times in my career and I didn't know. You probably know the same thing. I know you've been through a few things in your career, but you have to look around and often the solution lies quite close to you. But another way of doing it is to go out and ask other people and ask other people what they think you should, you could do. And I started going out and I set a sort of goal to go and see three different difficult people, you know, people that I would find difficult to see, you know, and get their advice. And there's a guy I'd known from the television business who was the producer of Japanese, what was Japanese top of the pops type show. In fact, he was called Mr. Uehara. And um, he, um, and I was asking and I said, what about sushi? Because I'd like sushi. I'd lived in Los Angeles. I like sushi. It was before it happened at all here. Only Japanese people ate it. And he looked at me straight in the eyes and said, what you should do, Simon, is a conveyor belt sushi bar with girls in black PVC miniskirts. That's a famous story, but that's what he said. And it was like a light bulb going off, you know. And I said, tell me more. You know, of course, there was no internet to research it on. So I had to go through a whole lot to, sure. to figure it out. Okay. And I know you injected your life savings into this idea. Um, what gave you the confidence to do that? What drove you to do that? And well, again, the simple answer is desperation. Okay. You know, the thing is that if you have enough enthusiasm and excitement and belief for at least 90% of your waking day, um, 
you actually, I suffered from the delusion that I believed this was going to work for 90% of the time. The other 5% I wasn't quite sure, and the last 5% I was terrified that I'd lose everything. But I got to the point where I, I wanted to do it, you know, and I've, it's always been like that for me. I get to the point where I actually believe in something, I've done the research, I've put the thing in, and um, I want to see it happen. And then you are willing to put your, you, I was willing to risk everything, really. It didn't, it felt like a risk, but I didn't really, I, sort of, I was sort of in denial about how I might lose everything. I went for it, okay. and it was very enjoyable. Halcyon years, it took me two years to open that first restaurant. I went to do it in one year, it took two years. But they were very enjoyable Halcyon years. Insecure, but I lived off very little, didn't break into a fiver, you know, didn't take girls out, you know, really did. And I was obsessed. Okay. Good thing, obsession. Work life balance, not a good idea when you're starting something up, as you well know. Okay. Later, you need work life balance. Sure, interesting. And did you conduct any market research that kind of helped that confidence at all? Or was just. Look, you, you, I was starting a new market, effectively. Yeah. You know, you can't market research a market that doesn't exist. You know, if I'd actually gone out to a whole bunch of people and said, okay, you're my research group, would you like to eat raw fish off conveyor belts with robots serving the drinks? People aren't going to stand up and say, yeah, they're going to say the guy's a loony. You know, if, if, by the same token with our hotels, if I said, would you like to sit, sleep in a 70 square, meter, 70 square foot room with no natural light? Nobody's going to say, yeah, me too. You know, so no, I didn't. And I think very often that the sort of money I was talking about, you'd be better off not to conduct any research. Okay. I did go and get to do a bit of research so that I could put it in the business plan because okay. the banks like all of that. Okay. But it, I didn't take very much notice of it. Interesting. So what did you focus on personally over the, the initial two years to get up and running? Well, um, everything really. You know, I work on the principle that um, I call Mrs. Murphy's Law. And Murphy's Law is anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Mrs. Murphy's Law is my old man's an optimist. You know, you've got to cover every eventuality. So um, I actually, you know, I was a creative and I'd always drawn by hand, but I learnt CAD and I did the drawings of the first restaurants with help from other people, but I did the drawings of the first restaurants. Um, I did a great deal of research, you know, to find the right chefs and to see how things were done. Um, and, um, you know, I, I actually learnt how to do sage accounting myself. I could do everything myself. And I ran that whole research period um, out of a little, my little flat. And uh, just as a sitting room, that's all it was. It was an office. And we had, by the time we opened, we had five people working out of my little, tiny little front room. Okay. So, uh, you know, just completely and utterly hands on, mm. completely and utterly obsessed with every single mm. detail. Like they say about Elon Musk now, they do. They say he's an absolute nightmare to work for because sure. he's all over everything. Sure. Um, and, you know, that I believe that that is the way to get things started. You have to do. Do everything yourself and know everything. Later, you then have to make a big change, which a lot of people find difficult to do, which is you have to let, let go and let other people. But mm. in the beginning, obsession is a fantastic thing mm. to have. Sure. And how did you gain your initial success? I know after a week you had queues outside the door. Was that something purposefully kind of conducted in terms of, I don't know, exposure or PR, no, et cetera? I, 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 I said, you know, I, I remember I used to say to people, I'd say, what, what, what are you doing for marketing? I'd say, I'm throw, I've thrown away the marketing budget. I have no marketing budget at all. I spent all the money on doing something really interesting. And in fact, 
we did do a little bit. Uh, I was in Soho, I had a big, big shop window. I covered it all in a printed um, orange paper so that nobody could see in it. And on it, it had words like sushi, conveyor, robot, Sapporo. And people were walking past in Soho and they must have been talking about it because it was a big window. What is going on in that place? Yeah. And one day we took the, the paper down. We'd done no advertising, no PR, nothing. And we took the paper down and people walked past and word of mouth went out because they looked inside and there's this robot going by us. There was a conveyor belt. Nobody knew what it was. They didn't even know if it was a restaurant, but it was talked about. And okay. I certainly in, in, I think in the restaurant business anyway, word of mouth is the best marketing that you can do. We've sure. done something really, really interesting. Word of mouth went out. Nobody came for the first 10 days. I was um, worried as hell. I even sent somebody down to Stanford on Oxford Street with a big sign up saying sushi, which didn't do any good at all, but that was a nice paranoia. And the second Saturday, we had a queue down the block, as okay. you say, and it was, a, it was very, very exciting, I must say. Well, actually, it wasn't exciting. It was just an enormous relief. Yeah, you know, sure. enormous relief. I'm sure. So what challenges did you have then in the opening period, or even getting it up off the ground? People. Yeah. You know, before we opened, um, I was in charge of everything. I could run the whole thing. The day we opened, uh, we had chefs, we had a whole operation. I had a front of house guy. I hadn't ever run a restaurant before and I was smart. I got a good chef in and I got a good uh, restaurant manager in. But <coughs> they were of the ilk, of course they were. They were, oh, we don't do that, things like that in the restaurant business, Simon. This is how we do it. And of course I was going, no, no, we don't. We're doing it differently here. Why? Why, why, why? That must have been a nightmare. So it was difficult with those people. And uh, um, I felt, I remember falling out with the chef, the first chef we had, who was, you know, he was a terrific guy. But, you know, he wanted to do it his way and I wanted to do it my way. And I was right in the end. Um, so people was the main thing. And then, um, you know, the big story, of course, is that we opened and I owned 90% of the business. Uh, I had 5% for a childhood friend, 5% from a bloke I met on the street in Paris. They put a small amount of money in because I got a government loan guarantee scheme. And I didn't have the money to pay the bills for, the, for building it. I'd managed to get to opening, but the private investors who I'd been hounding were there with their checkbooks. And we had a queue down the block. Was I gonna give away the company to those private investors? No way, Jose. And I remember, famous story, I remember going to the, our biggest supplier and saying, could you give me some extended credit? And they just laughed at me. And I actually said to them, um, would you lend me the money to pay your bill? And he said, I'll ask my boss. And the boss who was a really hard-nosed guy, called me, they did that. And that's how I financed your sushi. And on okay. the front door of that first restaurant, it said Sony, Honda, all Nippon Airlines. From my TV days, I'd got three sponsors. You know, I'd got some cheap TVs, a cheap motorbike for delivery. And we opened and it was all over everything. And I found out later that the reason they'd extended me that credit and lent me that money was they thought that I was being backed by Sony, Honda and all Nippon Airlines, you know, so you can't always okay. get what you want, but yeah. sometimes you get what you need, you know. It hadn't, I didn't plan it that way, but yeah. it did look good. Very good, very clever. Yeah. Very good. So obviously you got off to a great start. When did you really have the confidence and know that this concept could scale and go big? Um, I'd always just wanted to open a restaurant so that with my last 200 grand that I'd put on the table, as you said, um, I would be able to earn 40, 50 grand a year and survive. And the day we took the 
front down of the restaurant and I looked, stood outside and looked in through the window and it looked like a film set. I thought this is enormous. This could be absolutely enormous. Okay. And then people came round from the, you know, the first people who came round was every every single person in the entire restaurant industry and every journalist and everybody because they wanted to see what was this thing that people were talking about. And they said, genius, you're a genius, all of this stuff. And I didn't believe that, but I did believe this could go pretty big. And then about six months later, I got a hot call from Dominic Cummins, who set up the fifth floor at Harvey Nichols, which was the hot thing at that time. And he said, would you open one for us in Harvey Nichols? And then Selfridges approached me. And I thought, right, they, they're obviously onto it. And that's when the mistakes started happening, because of course we got overconfident and we thought we could open anywhere. And then I opened one. Finchley Road works, and then we opened one in Edinburgh, and then lots of problems started. Okay, okay. I know you took Robin Rowland into the business to aid that scale-up process. I guess, what was the thinking behind that? Like, did you realize that you need a different skill set or experience, or? Yeah, you know, I think instinctively. I, I'm an entrepreneur, really, not a restaurateur and I needed somebody to actually operate that company on a professional basis because the thinking I had at the time was, you know, when there was a problem, I would lose it. You know, honestly, honestly, I did. You know, I'd have to go walk around the block twice doing deep breathing exercises before I walked in because my belief was that if something wasn't absolutely perfect, nobody would ever come back ever, ever, ever. What a really good restaurant operator does is they have their legal pad or their paper and they write everything down and they prioritize it and they have a good team behind them and they knock it off one by one and do it. And that, I wasn't that sort of person. Robin could never have started Joe Sushi by his own admission. Um, but I, in the end, I could never have built that into a business and, and really had a loyal staff and all of that because I'd changed my mind. I always, my story was like, you know, I'd always come up with a new idea every day that we were going to implement, you know, because that's how you get people coming in through the door, innovation. Sure. To keep them there, you've got to be consistent, you know, the food's got to be good and all of that stuff's got to be at a very high standard. Sure. And he was very, very good at it. And um, yeah, we, it was a good partnership. Okay. Really. So you realized you were the creative side yeah, of the business? You know, I, I, I think one of the great lessons of life in business anyway, and in everything, is to figure out what you're good at and then spend as much time as you can doing what you're good at and what you enjoy. Sure. And I'm, I know that I'm good at having ideas. I know that I'm good at motivating people. I know that I'm good at getting things started, um, having vision, you know, being bold, all of those things. Um, I'm also good at um, you know, talking about it, marketing it, you know, convincing other people of things, getting people onto my team. Um, what Robin was good at was the methodical day-to-day -day of putting a system in place and building something that could grow over a long period of time with a, a good and strong and loyal staff. Sure. And that, that, that those two things really work well together. Okay. I remember, but, you know, poor Robin, I, I mean, you know, he's done well out of it, but he, um, he got an OBE out of it actually as well. As we, both, we both got OBEs for, for the same restaurant, which is quite unusual. But he, I remember going to a, a big, one of the Katie's, one of the big award shows, the sort of 20th anniversary, and they got me up on stage to talk about it as one of the big personalities. And I went back to the table and Robin said, why do they always ask you to go up on stage? <laughs> and I said, because Robin, if they asked you to go up on stage, you'd talk about the ROI and the like-for-like -like figures, and it's boring. And I talk about the world and life and everything, and everybody laughs. Sure. And he went, yeah, you're right. <laughs> but I said, without you, I couldn't do it. And he knows that without me, he wouldn't have had that to do. Mm. Sure. And how difficult was the transition for you to come out of handling everything, like you said, to then moving aside and letting Robin come into that role? 
I think I did it quite well. I think okay. I surprised a lot of people because mm. from being a complete control freak, I handed over and allowed them to do it their way. Um, I think I did it reasonably well. You know, you're never going to do it that well because you're always going to, oh, what about this? What about that? But I did it pretty well. And by that time, I had the idea in my head for, to do the next project, which was not to the whole of more restaurants, but was to do a hotel. And um, um, so my head was in that. So I was, I was quite excited about it. Okay. But we went through a sort of interim period. I think Robin came in about sort of end of year three, beginning of year four. And it wasn't until year six, seven that we actually sold to our first VC. I mean, that entire business was built up to six restaurants, um, five, six restaurants on that 200 grand that I put in, you know, which we normally would have cost millions and millions. Sure. And, you know, we'd really sort of did it ourselves. So then we got a VC in and after that, um, I, I really didn't have control. You know, I still had control in those first days, even though Robin was running it. And then I didn't have control. And that was a really good thing to do because, you know, okay, let them do it. And I was very proud of the way they did it, actually. Really, really proud of what they did for the next 20 years. Sure. Um, and it allowed me to go off and do the next thing. And, of course, keep the brand as my own so I could do other things, but licensing it into different sectors, dividing it up. Sure. What were the biggest challenges, do you think, in scaling it up? Scaling the restaurant business up for Robin? Well, you know, in the end, a lot of it is to do with with you've got to get the right people and the right systems and all of that in place but choosing sites okay and we made a lot of mistakes on sites in the early days you know because you know there's not that much science to it i mm. mean there is i mean what we eventually discovered um was that um you need to open a flagship which we had in poland street which is mm. a hell of a big thing you know it's planet hollywood's arrived in london so you know big big talking point um, and then you need to go in, then you needs to be made cookie cutter. So it goes into the shopping malls and to, into Middle England and to all of that. And we learned that again when we went into New York. We should have gone into New York with a you know, big, big major investment and made it the New York's biggest talking point, instead of which we went into one of the shopping malls, in inverted commas. Mm. And of course, it was just another also ran. It was no big deal. Mm. You've got to make a name for yourself. And we did, you know, we made a name for ourselves. You know, sushi was a big deal at the time. Um, it, there was a big TV commercial that went out for Microsoft that we were all over. It was in the Johnny English film. It was a very, very talked about iconic thing of the uh, late 90s. And it, that sort of set the benchmark for us to get up there. Okay. But, you know, in those days, there wasn't the competition. You know, it was. Uh, there was Press Manger, they've got three places open. <coughs> Alan Yao just opened the first Wagamama. We came along, Nando's just opened. That was it, that was kind of it of the court. Now, everybody and their mother's got one, sure. including yourself. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you keep the business relevant and competitive through the years? Well, very good point, because um, you, know, you get an operator like Robin, um, was in you know, sushi and they're always looking at the margins, you know, and in sushi terms, you know, how big is the piece of tuna that goes on, you know, and I'd say it's got to be bigger and more and all of that. Um, I remember Julia uh, Metcalf had that relationship with, um, with, with Sinclair, his partner, and Sinclair was a numbers guy. Julian had come in and say, look, this is a fantastic sandwich, um, but it doesn't quite hit our benchmark for the margin. Uh, but it, let's do it. It's a fantastic loss leader. People are going to absolutely love it. And, it's the thing. And, and Sinclair would just go, no, 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 go away and 
work harder at getting the margin right. And I suppose that was the relationship with me and Robin in the early days. Um, you know, I'd always be looking at the top line, he would always be looking at the bottom line. And sometimes when he won, he, he'd, go to, he'd have gone too far. Sure. And people would just go somewhere else. And the trouble is that in any of these businesses, once you give a customer one bad experience, even if they've been coming for the last five years, you know, people are fickle, they go. And to get them back takes a long, long time. Mm. You can, but you've got to work very, very hard at it. Mm. You get two bad experiences and people go, oh, it's gone off the boil, we'll go somewhere else, especially in this day and age with this competition. Sure. So, you know, the two basics, staff, food quality. They've got to be great, 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 consistent, very, very hard thing to do. Nobody knows how hard that is to do, but you've got to do it. And that is given. And people think if you get those two things right, then people are going to come flocking in. No, you've got to do that right, as you know. Um, but there's also got to be what I was talking about, which is there's got to be a bit of ziz in showbiz. Sure. And that is about constantly innovating and delighting customers and making them excited and have a look at this new thing. Sure. It's not about saying, um, we've got a bargain in, which we did a lot and I was always very anti it. You know, Mondays you can get such and such a good deal, this, that and the other. I, I, I'm just a believer in making the, the experience so delightful. And I think certainly with Yo Sushi, there was a sort of, certainly in the early days, there was a thing that you'd come and think you were going to be able to eat for very little. It cost you a little bit more and by the time you'd come back the next time, a week later you'd have forgotten that it was a bit more and you'd start out all over again. But you were delighted by what you saw. And also we had a very different sort of market. You'd, you know, especially in the early days, you'd get pop, very famous pop stars. Everybody came, everybody. So it was a cool, cool place. But they'd be sitting next to, a, to an MTV skateboard kid, who'd be sitting next to a lady who lunch, who'd be sitting next to a suit and Jonathan Ross. You know, I mean, it was, everybody was there and it was very egalitarian around the, the conveyor belt. Sure. I remember, and I used to really liberate people to just do what they wanted to do, you know. I remember we had this one, um, this one manager, and you know I'd go just just be yourself, have fun. And she took me literally, and she she was she was a gay lady, and she stood up on the chair, turned the music off in the middle of service one night, and she said, "It's Brenda, my girlfriend's birthday," and the whole place went wild, you know. And she, you know, that was the scene. It sure. was a lot of fun. Sure, and that's a story then for people. It's a to talk story, about. and people yeah. say, you know, that happened. But you've got to. But most restaurant, you know, VC investor restaurateurs would not like that one little bit. Sure. Um, the guy, who was this guy, that guy who, who ran uh, Isaac, who, Isaac who ran the original Hard Rock cafes, he used to do that before. Service. And Hard Rock was one of the first of those type of restaurants ever, ever over here. Okay. And he used to get up before service and everything and say, be yourself, give things away. Be outrageous. Okay. And, you know, be different. He, uh, be different. Yeah. And, and, you know, and so, all the you're an actor you know you're not you're not serving food you're an actor you're in showbiz go to work you're in showbiz okay and i remember a famous story i remember at harvey nichols who used to i used to tell the staff before service i said look each one of these this is very difficult clientele here they're all rather rich and spot people in harvey nichols where they were at that time and i said um if if somebody's really really difficult to you um um, do whatever it takes to protect our investment because they're going to come back three times a week. They're going to tell 10 people over a period of time that they're, they're, they're each worth about 100 grand. So you can protect the other. You're free to give them a free beer, to give them free food, to do, discount the bill, do whatever you want to do. But if they're really, really rude to you, just know that it's not about you. Ooh. If they're really, really rude to you, 
tell them to fuck off and I'll support you. We don't launch your type here. Of course, nobody ever did that, but they felt that they had the freedom to do it. Sure. Okay. And when that initial buzz died down or became more normal, I suppose, people got used to it and the competitors start entering that space. How then do you remain competitive with other sushi operators? Well, I think you've got to innovate. Okay. You know, and, and innovate not, you know, we've made mistakes over the year. We had the flying hovercraft thing, which is a bullshit thing. Um, you've got to constantly innovate. And in fact, sushi's going through to the moment, <coughs> um, doing new things. And I see Ooh. them, are very proud of what they're doing. They're looking for to do new things. To you know, when we opened the, um, First Joe Sushi, I remember there was a, a bit that had got so much TV because it was so much, te so televisual. And I was quite televisual because I didn't just talk about how good the service was and how good the food was. I talked about my rock and roll background. I talked about the world and life and everything like this. And people were interested in it. You know, it was much more interesting than just talking about food quality. Yeah, there was, um, you know, just try and do things, make it exciting. You've got to constantly innovate. I, yeah. call, I call it, I used to call it, can I? C-A-N-I question mark, constant and never-ending innovation. Okay. <clears throat> and I still believe in that. I think you've just got to constantly reinvent yourself, constantly do things, not on a marketing gimmicky thing, but do things to actually, <coughs> in my 60s vernacular, blow people's minds, you know, and, and be bold enough to do things differently. Sure. It's like the, um, it's like, you know, look at David Bowie when he used to make albums. He'd make stuff that people would go, what is he doing now? But when he actually came to the end of his, you saw the body of work he had done, totally innovative, you know, always reinventing yourself and being different. <coughs> and you make mistakes along the way, but um, that's the way to do it. You can't just stay safe. That's what VCs want you to do, is get a formula, keep repeating it. We live in a very, very competitive world today. You, you know, you've got to, what you, your base has got to be good, but then you've got to innovate and do things and su surprise people. Okay, okay. You've got, I think is always, you've got to see what they're doing now. What do you mean? I'll go and have a look. Yeah. Okay. And you obviously scaled up very successfully. You rolled out and then you exited yourself, uh, partly initially. Yeah. When did you know the right time to exit? Um, you know, you, you, I've never been, a, I'm not a process driven person. Mm. You know, I, I do stuff on instinct. Um, you know, everything is for sale and there's a price on everything and I'm willing to move on. I never, f I loved what I did and I love very proud of Yo Sushi and Yo and all the things I've done with Yo, but I was never completely uh, possessively in love with it. I wasn't codependent in a codependent relationship. I knew that there were other things I wanted to do and to get on with it. So it was everything that was always for sale and, um, the reason actually we did the first exit is that we needed the money. We actually had overexpanded. We'd had a couple that hadn't gone very well. We had repairs to do. We didn't exactly tell the VC that, um, but we managed to get to the exit and I reduced my stake from 90% to 25% <coughs> and I took out about 10 million quid, which was, uh, no, well actually I took out less than that. Um, but it was less than I thought and I was a bit sort of embarrassed that it was so low. Um, later I got more, um, but I owned 25% I owned at that stage. Um, but it was needs must. Okay. I remember getting to, Robin Rowland really led the cavalry charge to do that. And he kind of believed that we'd get that deal 
through. I sort of, you know, I was because I had all my money. It's like a sort of stack of card houses, you know, that I'd built up, could have got blown over. So I was nervous, but I remember turning up to the closing deal and we walked into the lawyer's room and there were 39 documents to sign and this, that and the other. And these lawyers had been absolutely awful on the other side. You know, suddenly turned into nice people. They opened the champagne and they said, where do you want the money? It was in the days of checkbooks. And uh, I had my checkbook. And because I hadn't really believed it was all going to happen, I hadn't arranged for anywhere to put the money. So I sort of just got my checkbook out and gave them the sort code and my current account number. And they said that the money was going to be in my... Um, bank account within within 20 minutes. Wow! And um, I remember walking back after a few glasses of champagne down Oxford Street, where I lived. And I, I passed a NatWest Bank ATM machine. I thought, well, if it's in my bank, I'll have a look. So I went and looked and put my PIN number in, and there was the sum of money on the screen. And that was a life-changing moment, you know. For sure. And I stood and looked at it for so long that there was this queue built up behind me. I remember this guy behind was sort of coughing and spluttering. <coughs> excuse me, how long are you going to be? And I turned around to him. I said, "Excuse me, mate, copper, look at this," you know. <laughs> and um, and I can tell you what, um, Peter. If anybody ever tells you that money doesn't make you happy, they're lying. <laughs> very good, very good. So you've obviously seen the London dining scene change over the years, and in particular, I've been in London now twelve years. I've seen it change significantly. And even recently with the kind of food halls um, popping up all over the place, um, the popularity in street food, um, some struggling restaurant chains going under, sure. going to administration. What are your general thoughts on the industry today and where do you see it going over the next few years? Well, I'm a big picture guy, you know. Um, you're not going to get a lot out of me about what the actual detail of it is, but <clears throat> I think that um, as a big picture, we're all in show business, we're all in entertainment, we're all in the changing world, the enormously changing world, whether it be Tesla motor cars or um, the apps we use or how we live our life or how we run our careers. And the same thing will happen in food, um, whether it's um, ABBA opening the Mamma Mia restaurant in O2, which I believe has been enormously successful, which mixes show business with with food. Uh, whether it, you know, there are no rules. You know, when I was growing up, you know, you were a restaurateur or a lawyer or this or that. Now we can be everything. Mm. You know, look at where we're sitting in a place here. It's a food hall, which is entertainment as well. Shopping will be the same. So I think there is, um, although there's much more competition than there's ever been, for people with true imagination, um, who are really prepared to be innovative and absolutely in my 60s vernacular blow the customer's mind, there is enormous opportunity right now. I mean, I think it'd be incredible. I used to say that um, if I started Joe Sushi now, I wouldn't have pulled it off because there's too much competition. You know, there's too many other people in the marketplace. And when, but actually, when I think about it, I think you could. Because okay. I think if you can go, there's a lot of people come to me with ideas. Okay, we're going to make Indian food, the new sushi. We're going to make tea, the new coffee. Um, I've got the fantastic idea for a restaurant. The food is so good and the, I've got these amazing recipes. And I'm always saying, you know, you need more than that today. Ooh. You need to be very, very innovative in terms of you doing it. And I think there's room for imaginative bold people to do very, very strong things. But you've got to hold a flag up and wave it mm. and say, look at this. This is really different. 
this is really giving you something. Yeah. And so I think there's lots and lots of opportunity. It's a very exciting time to live because we're going to see more and more. Sure. And, you know, we're, we're, we're great. We're, we're an amazing nation, the Brits. We've always have been. We've we explored the world. Uh, we went out and colonized. We were always nice to people. We had, had, did the music. We did the fashion. Now we're doing food. And when I was growing up, we were, we were a laughing stock of the world for food. Mm. You know, look at us now. So things can change dramatically. And I think that's uh, yeah, a very, very interesting, exciting time to live. Okay. I know you mentioned staffing was one of your biggest challenges yeah. in getting your sushi off the ground. I know personally myself, it's probably the biggest issue we have today as well. And with things like Brexit, etc., it's, it's not getting better. It doesn't seem to be getting better. Do you have any thoughts on that at all or any potential yeah, solutions I mean, to it? Look, obviously, you know, I'm going to say, and I do believe it, that nobody's really done the robotic thing properly. It's, it's because robots haven't come on quickly. I've been to all the robotic shows. I've seen how it all works. I've seen it, it will definitely happen. Okay. Um, people say, oh, no, you can't replace that. Um, so there's all that, especially if you can make it showbiz as well. Okay. Um, and you see that going into the kitchen side as well? I think it'll go to the kitchen side, okay. yeah. yeah. And you get, most people in the restaurant business can't see it, you know, because you can't see things. You know, mm. that's why, you know, blockbuster videos never became Netflix. You know, that's why <coughs> um, HMV Records never became whatever, you know, Spotify. You know, yeah. people can't see it when they're inside. But I'm sure that that will all happen. Um, and then I see a lot of innovative things happening in terms of looking after staff. You know, that's what you've got to do. The thing about staff is that however generous you are to them, within two weeks they've forgotten how generous you were to them and they want the next thing. Mm. So you've got to accept that that is the case. And I believe that if you can give people really, really great lifestyles and uh, motivation and career opportunities and all of that, but that requires enormous attention to, to detail. It's not just about paying people more and bribing them to stay on. Sure. People want to be part of, it's like, you know, the World Cup rugby team. They want to be part of something that goes into, it's like Leicester winning the football. Mm. You know, they want to be part of something that's worth more than money. Then there's money that comes after that. You know, so let's say it with Brexit, you know, first of all, we've got to, we've got to make the money as a, a country. You know, we've got to make it, then we can share it out, you know. Sure, sure. Okay. Um, I'd like to touch on just your mindset um, okay. for a moment. Sure. And I know you've been quite open about mental health uh -huh. um, and your own mental health in the yeah. past. And it's obviously a hot topic, rightly so, yeah. at, at the moment. Um, how did you deal with those struggles yourself and how did you come out the other side? Well, I don't think I'm that abnormal. You know, I suffered from some depression, um, you know, partly brought on by actual practical things that happened to me in the world and probably a bit of, uh, you know, and that gets into the psyche, you know, and confidence loss and all that. It's a funny thing, confidence, because when you're really confident like I am now sitting in front of you, you can't imagine what it's like. It's like on a sunny day, you can't imagine a winter's day. And, um, but yeah, I certainly went through that. I stopped drinking, I stopped doing any drugs. I, you know, I, I didn't do anything, don't do anything like that now. And I've turned my life around in that respect. Um, I, I think that, uh, yeah, it's, I think it's amazing that, you know, where we've come in terms of that. You know, when I was like, growing up, if you went to see a therapist, you know, you were kind of a loony. You know, today, we're, that's what we're using in business to help people build teams to understand the psychology of how we all work. And, um, you know, I think it's a very, very hopeful for the human race that we can get through all of that. 
But we live in a, well, certainly here in London town where we're talking now, we live in an incredibly stressful environment. I mean, I'm a pretty capable guy and I find it stressful sometimes. You know, just think what most people go through. You know, there's, you just walk down the street and see what people are going through. And if one can get to that, to dealing with, um, you know, loneliness, to dealing with, um, you know, the stress that people find, you know, the, the compar comparing yourselves to others, you know, and all of that stuff. You know, that, that once we find that, I, I've got hope for the human race. That's what my mother used to say, it's better than it used to be. Um, and I think it's very good that what we're going through. And I think this, this current generation is fantastic in that sense of being accepting. You know, we've had to really fight to accept, you know, the gay liberation for black people, for mental health, all of these things. But we're coming into a, a new world, you know, and, and I think it, it's better for human beings. You know, eventually we, we need to solve the problem of uh, the disparity between rich and poor people around the world, you know, and that is the main thing. I, I think that people in 50 years' time or 100 years' time will look back at us living this life of luxury uh, with all the problems we've got, obviously, but living this life of luxury where people on the African continent and around the world are starving and living on absolutely nothing. I think they'll look back at us and say that it was a bit like sending children down the mines that we, you know, we did years ago. Um, and we all live in some sort of denial. You know, I try to help where I can, or well, I, not where I can, I try to help. But, you know, I'm still selfish and I'm still in some denial about that. If somebody was dying here, I'd do something about it immediately. If they're dying across the world, mm. I can kind of pretend that doesn't exist. That is a sort of form of denial that we all live in. Mm. Um, so I think that will have to change. Um, but I think the world is going in the right direction. I'm an optimist. Okay. And do you think there's anything that we can do as an industry, so in the food industry, to support and help employees working in the industry? I think the food industry is a very, very good example mm. of um, people who, because the uh, waiting staff and to some extent the kitchen staff are so on show to the public, you've got to, you can, we're very perceptive as human beings, you've got to want those people to be happy in their work. A bit different to a factory, if you're making umbrellas in the Midlands, it doesn't really matter if those people aren't happy because the umbrella buyers aren't the don't, don't thing, but in the hospitality industry you need to have people to be happy. So I think the hospitality industry is very keen and spends a lot of money and time on training and HR for what it's worth, you know, to try and get people to be happy because you can see it. Okay. So I think, uh, I think we've got a really good opportunity in the food business. To, um, to lead the world, to show people how to, how to really look after people. I always said the customer is not the most important person. Mm. Staff is the most important person, because if you can get the staff right, then the customer is going to be happy. Mm. Okay. And I've heard you say in the past that you live by a motto, so it's follow your fear to find your destiny. What, what do you mean by that? Well, um, follow your fear to find your destiny, you have to think about that one. But, you know, fear, you know, there, there's, there's only, you, you can really bring hum, human emotions down to four things. Happy, sad, angry, and um, I can't remember what the other okay. one is. But, but um, fear is, um, is, you know, pretty inherent in all of us. We all suffer from fear on a daily basis. And it's a word that, you know, is kind of scary. So 
to be able to deal with your own fear. I've climbed, for example, and part of climbing is about being afraid. Your, your palms sweat, you know, you're worried about checking your rope, is the system right? And then when it's finished, of course, there's great relief. You get Ooh. feel a real high of euphoria having done a climb. Um, but, you know, I, I wouldn't give up anything to not have that fear in the first place. It's a fantastic thing to go through that and come out the other side. And fear in business is the same thing. You know, fear is, is inherent to us all. So I think that um, being risk averse, trying to live a life that's all comfortable, it's okay. It's absolutely okay to feel uncomfortable in this world. And we're taught that you need to feel like, the way, the way I always said it was, uh, you're in a sort of comfort zone if you try to stay safe the whole time and you need to step outside that comfort zone. And of course, as soon as you step outside that comfort zone, you feel like you, feel you want to step back in, but stay outside for a period of time. You know, like the pebble dropped into the lake, the ripples go out. And that's what really successful people do and big politicians and all these people, they are willing to step outside their comfort zone, feel the fear and do it anyway. You know, follow your fears, yeah. find your destiny. Feel the fear and do it anyway was a book. Not a very good book, but it's a very good title. <laughs> and um, so face up to your fear. Know that you can feel f fearful or feel uncomfortable, and that's an okay place to be because it will pass. Okay, okay. So after your sushi, obviously you went on to found your home and your tel. Mm -hmm. um, what drove you to start new businesses um, following the exit from your sushi? What kept you going? Well, you, you can't be on holiday all your life. Ooh. I'm lucky I've got sailing and climbing, so I can do a bit of that and I love to travel. Um, but I think all of us need, to, well, people in my situation anyway, I, I need to, to have things that I, want to, that I want to wake up in the morning and jump out of bed to do. Um, and I started looking at hotels and imagining what a hotel could be, and it's an enormously stimulating thing for me. Same with Yo Home, and now I've got this new project in the Bahamas doing a resort out there. And, um, you know, they're very stimulating and you get to work with other people. And um, it's slightly different now because I don't put everything that I've got in the world on the line. Mm. But in a way you do, because once you're in it, you know, you're, you're in it, you know, and you're spending money and it's your own money. And I've always spent my own money to, to prove things, to try and get them up and running. But I have had a successful formula in the sense that, certainly with Yo Sushi and Yo Tel and these other ones I think will follow in the same way, is that I've put my own money on the line, I've got the thing started, I've got it up and running, I've proved it, I've sold it to venture capitalists or to organisations that can then roll it out and do what I can't do, which is the, the, what we were talking about earlier, and uh, kept a royalty, okay. which is um, unusual, but it's, it's worked pretty good for me. And okay. it means that I've got, still got royalty money coming in that I can use to develop new things. So maybe that's my, maybe I can carry on till I'm 80, coming up with ideas, proving them and developing them, handing them those for other people to, to roll them out. Sure, makes sense. Do what you, figure out what you're good at, spend your time doing what you're good at. Sure. Fun. And what did you do differently, if anything, so second time round, third time round in business? You know, I, je regret rien. Okay. I regret nothing. Um, what did you do differently? Sorry. What, so, what did I do? So so from since Yo Sushi. Since, um, since Yo Sushi. Yeah. Um, well, I think it's actually the same thing, the same, the same as the question I was going to answer, okay. which is that I think I was pretty tough in the early days. Um, I think I'd walk into a meeting or a room and people would be scared 
you know, well, he's going to change his mind, what is he going to do, are we safe, you know, and all of that. And I think that was just me at that time. That's probably what was needed to make the thing happen, that I can't change who I was and who I'd become. And I think now if I walk into a room, people are much more, uh, feel much more secure, I'm much more consistent. Um, I'm kind of, um, you know, I, I'd come into the office on a Monday morning and people would go, how was your weekend? And honestly, I think, why are you asking me that? What's that got to do with anything? We're here and we're in a mission to do this. And now I walk into the office and I ask people how, what, how their weekend was. Okay. So I'm a gentler soul. Okay. Um, whether I, if I'd been a gentler soul, I, I probably, probably would, have, would have done it better actually in many ways, but I wasn't that person. So okay. that's how it was okay. and I am now. Okay. You've softened with age. I have, yeah. Okay. So what else are you getting up to now in life? You mentioned sailing and climbing. Do you have other business interests or? Not really. I mean, although I was a dragon on Dragon's Den, you know, I was never that interested in investing in lots of other different things if they weren't called Yo. Um, and I've recently knowledge, I think it's out now, I bought an island in the Bahamas. Um, I wanted to do uh, this concept called Floating Islands and I bought an island to do that. And I'm now developing that and I think that will be um, something very different. Um, and join the possibly join the Yo family. So yeah, it's it's, it's interesting, and I'm I'm very hands-on in all these things. But I also have good project managers around me now, which I can afford, which I couldn't in the other day, days. So so that people don't have to report into me on every single detail. I'm not Elon Musk anymore. Okay. I'm more a bit wiser and sager. Okay. And any other future ambitions you have in your mind? I think just keep going. You know, I think if I had just done Yo Sushi, I think, I don't know if it's true for men or women, I think there is a kind of inherent thing in men that we need to prove ourselves. So certainly I had a bit of grit in the oyster that I felt a bit less than growing up as a child, you know, and I was, you know, I always used to tell people I was going to be a millionaire by the time I was 20, rather annoyingly so. And of course I wasn't. Um, but I had a bit of a grit in the oyster, and I think the thing is, so if, if I'd just done Yo Sushi, I think I'd have been pretty pleased with what I've done in my life. That would I've done Yo Tell as well, that I've got Yo Home nearly off the ground, that we're doing this new one in the Bahamas, that we've got Yo, that I wrote a book, I made a record with the blockheads, I, um, um, you know, I was appeared on television in the Dragon's Den, I've done lots of TV, I've done lots of public speaking, I'm sitting here talking to you, all of it is bonus, way beyond what I, I still wake up and think, you know, I'm used to being me now, but I still achieve much more than I ever thought I was going to. So it's all bonus, really. Sure. And just try and keep on doing interesting things. Okay, very good. Is there one thing you know now that you wish you had have known when launching your sushi? Um, you know, I could answer that question in lots of different ways. Um, everybody told me you should never buy property. Leave that to property developers. I wish I'd bought properties um, as Duncan Ballantyne, who was another um, um, dragon. dragon on Dragon's Den, did with his health clubs. I'd have made far more money. Um, I should have done that with the Sushi. Um, I should have employed um, more and more expensive and better people earlier. I tried to, uh, to do that. But then I, I can see the other side of that. But no, pretty much not, no. Okay, interesting. And what advice would you give people, let's say, who maybe have an idea to launch a food business? Um, from all of your experience, what kind of 
key advice would you give them? Well, I think there's lots of different ways of doing it. And, you know, you can, uh, you can launch a corner shop, make a great success of it, or you can launch an incredibly innovative thing and make a complete failure of it. So we all have different ways of doing it. But my particular way has, is to be noticed. You know, and not to just be noticed in your town, but around the world, you know, to do something extremely bold um, um, and to try and make it work. Um, pay great attention to cash flow. You know, cash is everything. Um, do something within your, 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 well, I was going to say do something within your capability. No, go beyond your capability and be bold. Um, if it fails, and I know you've had one that's failed over the years. Um, if it fails, it doesn't matter. You know, you're going to, especially if you're younger, you can pick yourself up and you've got a great deal of experience and get on with the next thing. Uh, Richard Branson says, you've got to dust yourself off and get up and get on with it. You know, failure is, a lot of people talking about failure now, you know, mm -hmm. be prepared to, to just go for it and fail and, and get back up again. Um, yeah, don't try not to run out of cash. Just, I guess, just get going, I suppose. Yeah, you know, I never met the person who went out to do, follow their dreams mm. and do what they really dreamed of doing and regretted it, mm. regardless of whether they later succeeded or failed. But I did meet a lot of people who, from a much older age, looked back and said about their life, um, I wish I'd taken more risks mm. and I wish I'd actually put my hand up and put my head above the parapet from time to time. Mm. And I don't think I will ever have that problem when I get old. You know, I think I'll be pretty proud of the fact that I took some risks and very grateful for the fact that the risks worked out. Okay, great note to end on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Peter. Okay. Cecil Cheers.